You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. The environment itself is a source of spiritual nourishment and a source of confidence. So instead of always looking inward, like how can I feel better about myself and so on, you can actually create an environment that gives you confidence. And that is, that to me was a great teaching. I don't have to do this all by myself. I can count on my clothes, my room, my food, my conversation to give me a sense of being uplifted in this world. That was Susan Piver, the New York Times bestselling author of eight books and the creator of the Open Heart Project, the largest virtual meditation center in the world. She joins me for her third episode on the podcast to discuss the links between mindfulness and creativity. And throughout the conversation, we share some of what we've learned in our own practices that help us go back in when we get distracted, lost, or afraid. We're also joined by the bird that lives outside her studio for the first 20 minutes or so. She apparently had a lot to say about creativity and mindfulness, so we decided to invite her to the party for just a little bit. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Susan, thanks so much for joining me again. Um, as you know, I always love our conversations, whether they're on the podcast or in other places. Um, this is actually your third time on the show. So um, you've, you were on episode four and episode 54. And in both of those, we talked about um, mindfulness and meditation, how to, how to do that more. And, I, and I, those were fantastic episodes. We've actually gotten a lot of people um, mention how much they like those episodes. Um, and in some of our conversations, I've recently sort of remembered that you have an angle on meditation and creation that um, I would love to explore today on, on this particular episode. I would love that. And I'm so glad to be talking to you again. I will look for any excuse to have a conversation with you, Charlie. That's fantastic. And so, all right. A lot of times when we think about mindfulness and meditation, right? And, you know, we've talked about a lot of things like the the Fantasia experience of sitting there in, in the meditation position and all the wonderful things that people think should happen. And then they sit there and it doesn't happen. That's sort of what we were talking about last time. Sometimes it happens, but a lot of times it's just sitting. But a recurring theme from both of those episodes is that meditation isn't just about the what happens while you're meditating, but what it powers after you meditate, right? What, what it enables you to do. And um, turns out that it can help you become more creative and productive and things like that. So I know you've taught this for years, so it's old hand stuff for you, but what is this link between meditation and creativity? Well, it is a topic that I really, <clears throat> I really love. And on one hand, the answer is there is no link because meditation is just meditation and creativity is just creativity. And if you meditate for any reason to become more creative or to be more patient or to feel less pain, you know, even fantastic motivations such as those, the practice sort of deflates. It, it seems only when we do it without an agenda while we're doing it, but just do the practice, apply the technique, that the magic 
arises. So on one hand, they don't have anything to do with each other. However, on the other hand, I found as a meditator and a writer that the practice of meditation and the practice of creativity are not different in any way. And here's why I say that. So in both practices, you do two things simultaneously. The first is to use your mind in a very precise way. In meditation, you place your attention on the breath, period. And of course, you think about things and you get distracted and that's no big deal. You just let go of those things and come back to the breath. And everything that is not the breath is considered thinking, everything. So very one-pointed, very crisp, very focused. At the same time, in the practice of meditation, as I'm sure you know, as you sit there with this one-pointed attention, you're, there's a sense of expanded awareness. Ideas arise. Insights come. Connections are made. You see things you hadn't seen before. Your mind becomes more spacious. So there's this simultaneous one-pointed and panoramic together in the practice of meditation. In the practice of creativity, I find the same two qualities to be present. I, I'll use writing, for example, because I am a writer. The precise aspect is you can only write one word at a time. No matter how hard you try, one. And you have to choose it, even if it's in a microsecond. But you still make that selection, and it is a purposeful selection. And you know when you've made the wrong selection, something in the back of your head is like, not quite right, but I'll leave it for now, or not quite right, I can't go anywhere until I find the right word, or whatever it might be. At the same time, how do you know what to say? You show up. You open up and something arises. It may be something brilliant and important and intelligent and useful, maybe something trivial and stupid and boring. But nonetheless, something arises. So there's this combination of one-pointed and spacious in both practices. And I find that the more I do one, the more relaxed I am with the other. And then the last thing I'll say about it is that in meditation, you learn to stay with the object of attention, the breath. You get bored, you get angry, you get distracted, you get excited. Let all of that go and come back. Stay. And as a writer yourself, I know you know how tempting it is to not stay and to just think, oh, it's not working today, or I'm not good at it, or who hasn't said this already a billion times better than me. But similarly, it's very useful to know how to just let go and remain. One of our um, colleagues, Seth Godin, has a, um, I think it was on the audio course, Leap First, um, but he mentioned that um, the the art of, of creation and, and leaping was to go back in, right? To go back in, right? And <laughs> so what I'm hearing, I think it was Seth, I've, I've listened to a lot of people and read a lot here recently, but I, what I'm hearing is both practices, the, the creative practice, whatever it might be, and the meditation practice has that sense of you're distracted, you just lost the breath, you just lost the word, you just lost the thread, and it's the art of going back in, right? Go back in and continually going back in. And I find that, um, you know, I've recently changed up some of my writing practices and I'm using a... Um, an alpha smart neo i'll write a post about it on the blog but it's an old school word processor right and um 
the practice has been over the last few days, like I'm tired. I don't feel like doing this. And I'm just like, you know what? Go back in, like find a way to get this done. Find a way to show up with the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing. I, I think when I'm meditating, like I'll be sitting there thinking and then I'm thinking about what I need to do for the day and all those types of things. And it's like, Oh, Oh, there I am. <laughs> Go back in. Um, and so there's, that's one aspect, but I love that you pulled up the both and feature, right? That, that with meditation, you focus on the breath, but you become aware of everything, right? Yeah. Or not everything. You become aware of much more, right? Absolutely. Um, but in create, in the creative process, you focus on what you're doing, but you become aware of so much more. Um, and so there's this weird duality that I think we have to exist as humans in that way, but as creative people and as spiritual people, we exist in these both and dualities. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really well said. And your description of going back in, getting back in, is another way of just defining mindfulness. Like what is meant by mindfulness? It's the ability to place your mind on the object of your choosing and then hold it there. It's a very rare, increasingly rare skill. And everybody gets is very easily distracted, but just notice that you are distracted and to then return your mind, that is very powerful. That is a superpower. And I agree with Seth or whoever might have said that, that getting back in for, is, is everything. And, and usually we use our willpower to do that or shaming or some sort of punishment and reward system. Myself guilty on all counts of those, but Actually, all you have to do is move your mind. Move your mind back to where you would like it to go, and you are eminently capable of doing that. And meditation really helps, you know, develop that muscle. Yeah, so I think, I mean, there is a point for willpower and discipline, because there's that choice, and, and this reminds me of the the post that Larry Robinson wrote, which I can't remember the name of it. I think it's the, the three growth-oriented ways to... Um, explore your creative edge. I think that's the name of the post, but we'll link to it in the show notes. But there's this choice, right, that happens, and that's the first fundamental act of creation that that he that he talks about is that you're presented with this distraction, you're presented with this emotion, you're presented with this fear, you're presented with this thing, and I, I think the commonalities between creation, or creativity, and meditation is like yes, that happens to all of us. The creators and the meditators make a different choice in that moment, right? Um, but it's, I, I think, because of bad narratives about creativity and maybe bad, the same bad narratives about meditation and mindfulness, I think mm-hmm. people think that you get to a point to where you don't have those distractions, that you don't have mm-hmm. those fears, that you don't have those interruptions. And, you know, if you're a meditator, you sit on the pillow and then 40 minutes later you get up and you're done, right? And, and the world is happy. Right. That would be awesome. (laughs) That would be awesome. Or if you're the writer, then like all you should do is show up to the blank screen and words flow and the muses speak through you and you're ignited and all those types of things, which do sometimes happen. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the view that people have that for many people, lots of people, the majority of people, I don't know. I'm not in everybody's place, but I've heard it enough from other people that like, that's not what it is. Right. It's just that they've learned to make that different choice. Yeah, I I agree. And some people have learned to make that different choice, I would add. 
And for some people, that system is good. Just you have, you know, I think you're also alluding to the idea that you have a time, you have an agenda, you show up at that time, you stay there for that allotted time, and you just choose to do that. But I, I just want to say for anybody out there who is more accustomed to operating in a nonlinear way or a, for whom that doesn't work, that there are other ways. It's, you know, there, I totally love Stephen Pressfield mm -hmm. and the art of war. War of art. War of art, yeah. War of art. And that whole sense of professional versus amateur and disciplined and I just show up every day and that's what... I don't do that personally. It just, I've tried that, but it doesn't work for me. There's something a little more circular that seems to work for me. And, but it takes just as much discipline to come back to that method as any other method. But I just want to say for anyone who's tried to approximate someone else's method and found it lacking, that maybe it's not you. Maybe it's just not the method for you. I would go as far as to say having having experimented with different methods, mm -hmm. um, it actually takes far more discipline to do it sort of the circular way that you mentioned the intuitive the time is right way because at this point you know I was talking to Susan about this beforehand. Um, I've been writing every moment for every morning for enough weeks that it's now the thing that I do, which is nice. It's really mm -hmm. nice, and so the big choice is like in that moment what am I going to write about? And sometimes I already have something, right? But there's not, there's not the sort of larger choices of, well, when does that go and what does it move? Like all those things I figured out for me really don't work really. Cause I, I'll, I will, I can't come back to the writing. I can't come back to the work when uh, my mind jumps to a million different places and trying to figure it out. But I can, because that's just what I do, right? This is one of those things, like when you get up in the morning, you probably have a, bi a biological routine of things that you do, mm -hmm. right? You don't think mm -hmm. about them. You just do them. It's, it's time to do that thing, and you do right. that thing. Right. Um, and so for me, it's super, super supportive and requires less willpower, less discipline to do that every morning as opposed to 5 o'clock. I've got a 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I've got a great idea. It's just hit me like crap, what do I do with this? And how am I going to get that done? And got to eat dinner and then I got to give socks fluids and then crap, like wow. I go nowhere really quickly. Right. 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 Right, right. As opposed to just saying, I'll capture it. I'll visit it tomorrow morning. Yeah. It's good. It's good. So, so good to get to know yourself and your creative guys. One of the things that I've heard you talk a lot about is that, um, one of the byproducts of meditation, I'm going to try to be clear about, like you don't meditate for this, but one of the byproducts of meditation is that you're able to access deeper parts of yourself. Um, maybe parts that you don't think about on a conscious basis, maybe, maybe pieces of yourself that um, only show up sometimes. And I think that's really interesting because sometimes I think when we get stuck creating or writing, it's because we're not going to those parts of ourselves. We're going, we're not going to a, a certain part of ourselves. Um, does that sound at all familiar that I heard that from you? And if so, can you go forward from, with it? It doesn't actually sound 100% familiar. I, I, yeah. I can totally imagine saying you can relax with yourself as you are, as opposed to trying to think, well, I should be this way, I shouldn't, and I shouldn't be that way. So probably that's saying the same thing. Um, 
but there's this interesting lack of division. I find the older I get, especially between what's hidden and what's not hidden, who I am and what, who I am in this room and who I am out in the world. It, it just does. It just seems like one big, I don't know how to say this elegantly, but just sort of seems like one ongoing process. And I'd say there's days where I feel more comfortable with myself and less comfortable with myself and days where I have more inspiration and insight and days when I have less and I kind of don't know what governs it. And I kind I mean, I'd, I would never give up trying to create the environment for insight and wisdom and compassion and the things that we really aspire to, to arise. I would, I'll never give up as far as I can imagine trying to create the environment for those things. But I have actually found that it's more the creation of the environment for those things to arise that really matters more than any interpersonal or psychological or even spiritual choice that I might make in the way I relate to myself. There's one of the most interesting things to me about Buddhism in the Shambhala lineage that I practice in, among many extraordinarily interesting things, is the emphasis on what's called container principle, which is states, I guess you would say, that the environment in which something occurs is inseparable from the something that occurs. And the something that occurs is inseparable from the environment. So for writers, this is especially important, I think. So, and meditators, you know, if you meditate on the bus, it feels one way, but if you meditate in a cathedral, it feels another way. But you're the same, the practice is the same, but the environment has changed and it changes you. And I think, especially in the West, we're accustomed to thinking, well, I create the environment and when I want to change it, I'll tweak it and it will be different. But we don't really see the continuity of ourself and our environment. And I found it really useful instead of trying to become more confident or forgive myself or screwed up things about myself or whatever it might be to create a world, literally a room or a home or a car seat where I feel well. And the environment itself is a source of spiritual nourishment and a source of confidence. So instead of always looking inward, like how can I feel better about myself and so on, you can actually create a, an environment that gives you confidence. And that is that to me was a great teaching. I don't have to do this all by myself. I can count on my clothes, my room, my food, my conversation to give me a sense of being uplifted in this world. That's fantastic. What's really interesting is I think something that I've noticed with my meditation practice and with Angela's meditation practice is that we are much more intentional about the spaces we create to do those things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, I've, I've long wondered whether it's one of those things that once you start creating special spaces to do special things, um, it makes it more natural to create other spaces. Um, and Susan, you know this because we've talked about it before. It's like one of the first things that I'll do with my clients, especially if I'm looking at their looking at their office or looking at things like that, is ask them whether their space is working for them and what they need to do and change and whether it's actually a good conducive space for them to work. Because, yes, you could 
do all sorts of things to get yourself in the creative zone and overcome the cold floors and the, you know, or the heat or the birds outside or the kids riding rampant or whatever. Or you can simply change the space where you work, right? And I think, I think we know intuitively what we need in this because a lot, notice that we don't do creative retreats a lot of times in the middle of a city, right? We tend to go to nature. We tend to go to a place that, that does that. Or, um, for instance, one of the best places I love to work is when, like, when I know I need to get stuff done, I'll go to the library and I'll find one of those like old dusty nooks and crannies. And that's where my best work happens, right? This is like the, the environment and me sort of meld into one sort of organism and it mm. works. Um, and again, mindfulness, right? I think there was one thing that I thought we were going to talk about today, but I think we're talking about something else at the same time, which is amazing because it's interconnected is mindfulness. Isn't just those practices where you're sitting on the chair or you're doing your walking meditation or you're doing whatever you're doing. It's being mindful throughout the day of the, of the environments you're creating for yourself, mm-hmm. of the relationships that you're creating for yourself, of the stories that you're telling or that you're creating for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where, um, if we were to go meta, I think that's where meditation and mindfulness can really come in is that you notice that you can use it throughout the day, not just when you're on the pillow. Yeah, totally. Sometimes I say to my meditation students, you know, everybody, because everybody wants to be good at meditation and everyone thinks they're bad at it. But I try to tell them, what if you were the world's greatest meditator? So friggin' what? You know, what if you were the world's preeminent follower of the breath? You know, no one was better than you at following the breath. That would not be a very useful accomplishment. It would be cool, but this is not a game. This is how do I know myself? How do I work with my mind so that I can, not so that I can be good at meditation, but so that I can be good at being Susan or Charlie so I can be good at being in my life. That's really the reason to practice, not, and yeah, it's not like a self-help thing. It's more, I mean, this may or may not sound cool. It's more like an acid trip um, in the sense that, you know, you just become aware, and I'm aware of one one gazillionth of what there is to be aware of. And the only thing I can say about myself is I know that I don't know anything and I'm not being humble. Um, It's like you're in this kaleidoscope of inputs all the time, your environment, the inner environment, something someone said to you 12 years ago, your hunger, your cold, this idea you have. And it's all, it's like when you, you know, twist a kaleidoscope, an old fashioned kaleidoscope and one frame changes, all the other frames change around it. And mindfulness, one could say, is some sense of being in that flow. That's why I say acid trip. It's that flow of this constant changing of inputs colliding, and it never stabilizes. There's no pause. So the choice is, you know, try to grip it really hard and stop the kaleidoscope in your favorite when your favorite image arises and just freeze or just let go. And, you know, my favorite quote on this, and maybe I'm riffing, maybe 
on, you know, riffing in a good way or bad way. I have no idea. It's a great but, way. <laughs> okay, good. Um, is something said by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan meditation master and genius sage, who said, you know, yeah, we, this is me saying it, not Chogyam Trungpa. We all are trying to find safe space and stable ground. And what he said was the bad news is you're falling through the air. Nothing to hold on to. No parachute. The good news is there is no ground. For me, a mindfulness practice is about that kind of letting go. It doesn't feel like, oh, yeah, I've got this whole thing under control. This whole being a human thing under control does not feel that way. It all feels the opposite in many ways. But you know what? Let me just be alive. Let me be in my life. Let me experience the truth of what's happening within me and around me. And then see what happens next. And I don't know what that's going to be. But I hope it will be awesome. <laughs> For you and me both. Yeah, I see You know that fantastic link between the creative process and, and what you just mentioned, right? Because... Dude, that's so right on. This is... As a creative person, as a writer... The sort of that worst feeling is when your words are just stale. They're just not, you know, you know where it's going to go. You're gripping onto it. And so on. there's, there's no life force in the words themselves. Right. Totally. Totally. Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of this both and way that you've got to live is that, um, you know, once you get to that place where it's like, yeah, that magic is always there. Um, and your job is to, to try to harness it as much as possible. And there's no ground. There's no way you're ever going to be able to really like contain it all. And, and it's just not possible. And so staying in this case of constant flow and manipulation and, and energetic alchemy, like that's where the magic happens. And I think, you know, that's, that's one of the major links between the two disciplines or practices of being human, which is really what we're talking about, right? To, to be mindful is to be human, but also to create is to be human, is staying in that place where you're falling, but there is no ground. Um, you're alive, um, but, you know, also dying at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. There's all these paradoxes, and that's, that's the human um, condition. That is the human condition. And between our first breath and our last breath, what we're doing is exactly what you said. Our practice is to be human. And meditation is a really good support for that. But it is not a way out of that. So interestingly to me, um, in meditation, a big part of the practice is letting go of your stories. You know, storyline arises. I'm this way because of that. Or this person said this and it means that. Okay, maybe that's all useful intel. But while you're practicing, let go. Constantly let go of any narrative that arises, no matter how compelling. And as writers, we're trying to tell a story. And this relates to what you said about staleness, in my opinion, because I've really tried to investigate where does the life force come from? And there's some uh, way to write your story, whether it's how to start a business or a song or whatever the story is that kind of is a liberation for you and the person that's reading it. It feels liberating. And there's a way to write the same story or song or whatever it might be, the same words even, that solidifies the neurosis of the story. And what is that edge between the liberating and the solidifying 
in the telling of the story. And there's something about the presence, the mindfulness, the awake, awakeness of the author in the act of telling that creates, the, that presents the fork in the road. And it's really interesting to me that you can tell the same story in two ways, in one way liberates you, and the other way, you know, weighs you down. And somehow the way you're holding your mind in the act of creation is the tell. That's fantastic. It, it reminds me of, of something I've been thinking about and practicing. Um, and this is largely with some of the political thoughts and writings that, that I've been doing but haven't been sharing. Um, but there will be places where I'll get stuck and I'll ask, if I were writing under a, sum- a pseudonym, what would mm-hmm. I write? Oh, cool. Right. That's awesome. Right. If I were writing under a pseudonym, what would I write? And mm-hmm. I, you know, I've thought about why is it that that liberates my writing versus constrains it, right? Um, and for me, particularly, it liberates my writing because I, I don't have an image of myself that I'm portraying or trying to be or anything like that. It's focusing on the thoughts itself, right? right. And the power of those words and the power of all of that, not the thoughts coming from this masked person that is Charlie in this particular socioeconomic context in this particular place in history. Right. And so for me, a lot of times it actually, um, the best way to ground my writing is to lose myself. Um, and then other times the best way to, to ground my writing is to like really ground myself at the other time. And so it's just really, that's that thing where I think as we're doing this falling, not, there's not going to be one strategy that works all the time. Right. Um, but it's, it's what manifests this magic, what keeps me falling, um, and so on and so forth that you got to learn to dance with. Dance is exactly the right word because it is always in motion. And so interesting that you, you say you take yourself out of it, but in the same way in our both and or, or, or however we were saying it, you do take yourself out of it in a way, but you also place yourself in it in a much bigger way. It's like writing, maybe the other arts are like this too is it cannot it has nothing to do with you and it cannot happen without you it's this very strange paradox and you know other artists have a medium this is my opinion i've had people guitar players and sculptors argue with me and if you ever have the good luck to get into an argument with a guitar player or sculptor i would highly recommend it but i say you got you have a medium you guitar player you have an instrument you have a composition you have a band you have I don't know what you can make choices about tempo and chord progressions and you sculptor you have a, a substance and dancers have choreography and a stage and actors have you know whatever other actors in a screenplay and something to bounce off of something to engage with but we don't have anything to engage with. And I don't count your Neo or whatever it's called, or, (laughs) you know, a pencil or my laptop as a medium. It just happens to be, you know, it's like a guitar pick or something. It's just something that, but it is not the art itself. The guitar is part of the art. The screenplay is part of the art, but we don't, we are encountering a big open space. And I think that's why almost everybody maybe except for Stephen King and Stephen Pressfield, maybe you have to be called Stephen, um, is scared and has hesitation. And again, to quote Chagyam Trungpa, the eminently quotable, some, a student asked him once in a talk, I heard this, I never met him, but I heard this, what is our biggest fear? And he said, our biggest fear is of space. 
just space. And I feel like as writers, you know, the, the uh, stereotype is the, the blank page, but you are just encountering a blank space every time you sit down to do it. And I honestly think that's one reason that we need to trick ourselves and game ourselves and just find ways to actually just start. Because as I'm sure you know, all you have to do to write alpha and omega is start. That's it. You know, that's interesting. Cause I was reading, um, an article that Jeff Goins wrote in, it may have been Inc. Um, or New York Times. Anyways, he was talking about um, John Grisham's, um, what what John Grisham did before he was John Grisham, right? Um, and before, you know, the, the author that's written all these great books. You know, he had several kids and he had his, his, um, his job as an attorney. And he wrote one page every day. And, um, and I was like one page and, you know, he was like 250 words every day. If you write 250 words every day, um, you will be a writer. And I'm like, you know, it's one of those incredulous things as a writer, right? Mm -hmm. Because, um, normally in my writing blocks, I'll put in 800 to 1500 words every day, like Mm -hmm. when I'm doing this. Um, and I'm like 200 words every day. That's, that's incredulous at the same time that it's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Absolutely. 110% true. 110% true. And that, and that's, I think, you know, again, another link in this conversation is, um, we, and we've talked about in, in previous episodes, how people make meditation harder than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. They make, they, they have a big mystical thing about it. And it's this whole thing when really it's sitting somewhere and focusing on your breath for and intentionally for a certain amount of time. Period. Um, I'm not the meditation teacher, so I have to get a nod from Susan that that's what uh, it is. Yes, that's it. It's the most ordinary thing in the world. You sit down and breathe. Period. That's the whole practice. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Writing is much like that. You sit down and you write about something, right? And I think as um, as you become more practiced with it, it gets easier to start. And that's the oh, difference. Right. It's not that you have some better way. It just gets easier to start. Now... What I will also say is the more you write sometimes, the harder it can be to finish. But that's mm-hmm. another conversation, right? Because, right? because you involved, you know, we get involved in different ways. But that's really what it is, is, um, you know, are you writing frequently? And so sometimes people will ask me, like, how do you write so much, Charlie? How do you do so much? I'm like, I'm just always doing it, right? I start mm-hmm. frequently enough, right? I do it frequently enough that it gets easier to do frequently. That's really um, good. And do it long enough, you get words on the page, so and so mm-hmm. forth, right? And you do get better. Um, what I will say mm-hmm. as the writer who also plays guitar mm-hmm. is that there are certain modes where you can get where both feel the same to me. They, they feel almost mm-hmm. identical. How it, so? Um, so sometimes you you start playing guitar and you start singing and so on and so forth, and the music and the guitar become an extension of yourself, much like the tight, much like the keyboard or whatever tool you're using, right does. And it just becomes that sort of way. And so it's not that the guitar is the medium is that the, the guitar becomes some sort of bridge between these other parts of yourself. Sounds very mystical. I know. No, that makes sense um, actually. But, and so it feels when you're in flow, the same as when you're writing in flow. But mm-hmm. it also feels like when you when you can't start writing, it feels the same mm-hmm. as when you can't start playing. So for me, they're 
they're just different um, extensions of myself in that way. Um, that, that sometimes I have access to other times it's harder to get access to. Um, that's very interesting. I, 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 for some reason, I want to sh- share this story with you that I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks a lot. And it's something that happened to me a long time ago, 20 years ago. How long? When is that? When was 20 years ago? 1997. Yep. I mean, it was about that. No, no, it had to have been earlier than that. Early, early nineties, let's say I, I worked at a, not at a bar, a blues bar, the best blues bar in the world. If, as you know, you know me, I try to work this into conversation all the time. Yep. Anyway, it's called Antones and it was in Austin, Texas. And it had an incredible, incredible, redonkulous house band. And this was before Stevie Ray Vaughan died, the great legendary guitar player. He would drop by and sit in. And this one particular night he dropped by to sit in and also you two drop by to sit in. So they're all on the stage together with the house band and the guitar player in the house band was my boyfriend and I wasn't working, but I was there. And the B3 organ player, the organ player was packed. And I was just sitting there, I was getting jostled. He's like, come up here, sit on stage, sit, sit on the organ bench with me. And so that was of course the best seat in the house. And they're, they're playing and they're jamming and it's, they've never played together, but they're just like, finding the groove and beyond the groove. And it was so great. And, and the organ player was basically playing rhythm, you know, just chords. And I think he wanted to smoke a cigarette and then people just smoked in the club. But anyway, he took my index finger and he put it on a key and he's like, just, just hit that key. Just (laughs) so I did. (laughs) And suddenly I'm in the friggin' band. <laughs> and the whole thing sounded different. It was so different. I could hear my little key in the giant, you know, field of sound with these legends. And it was one of the most joyful experiences of my whole life. I hadn't thought about it in years, but for some reason I thought about it the other day. And I guess what you're saying makes me think about you know, it's one thing to look about at the process, think about the process, try to get the right pen and, you know, study other authors and what they do. And, and all that's important. And I love that kind of geek out about those things. But then you put your finger on the key, and you're in. And it's a whole different world. It's just a whole different world. There's some point in that story that both relates to what you were saying and is as yet to be discovered by myself through further contemplation, but joining in. Joining in, the point. going back in. Um, I mm-hmm. also think in, in your press kit that you need to put that you played with Stevie Ray Vaughan <laughs> and you too. Damn it. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> um, because I'm your Don King. We, we, we've discussed this already. Um, <laughs> you are my personal manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think, um, so a practice that I've been working on when it comes to both meditation and creativity though, is really checking my bullshit about what tools and equipment and stuff is needed to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, because it's so easy to fiddle. It's so easy to be like, if I had this cushion or if I had this app or if I listened to this thing and if I had these sort of other things, then all these pens. Yeah. <laughs> then it would just happen. 
right? Um, <laughs> right. But, but it makes me think, like, you know, um, I always go back to some of my heroes. Like, I think of, like, John Milton, who was blind when he wrote um, Paradise Lost, wow. actually. Um, he had to talk to through his daughter to create this tome. The man wow. could not write. Oh, my God. And still, I didn't know that. Yeah, and still composed one of the best works in English literature, wow. right? Could not write. Um, and I think about, you know, different people like that in different circumstances. And I also think about Glenda Watson Hyatt, who's also been on the podcast, right? It's got cerebral palsy and mm. she's written books with her thumb. Crazy. Right. One of my heroes in that sense, um, sure. because of her tenacity, not because of, you know, other things, but so it's been this sort of thing where it's like, um, yes, you can just show up with what you have and go back in and, you know, it's always this process of, of getting to be good enough, but not good enough in sort of this objective standard, like, who are you? But it's like, you're mm -hmm. always practicing. And, and yes, you know, to an experienced musician, you kidding, hitting that key, you know, it's like, who's the fifth grader? Or, you know, like, <laughs> exactly. who, who's up there, right? Um, and at a certain time, at a certain point, like, he was hitting keys. And, and it reminds me of this line in the Tao Te Ching. I'm going to butcher it. Um, it's so beautiful. I'm almost... I would run and get it, but it's um, um, the master's knife in the student's hand only cuts the student. That's awesome. Right. It's a paraphrase of what it is, but it's like you take the master's knife, who could use that, that thing masterfully. Mm -hmm. And when someone else tries to pick it up, they only get cut, right, in different ways. And so there are That's different translations of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think so many times we confuse the master's skill and who the master is, or the sage, I'll use sage because that's a much more um, approachable language. We, we confuse the output that sage does with the tools that they're using. So as a podcaster, for instance, people will be like, what mics do you use and what technology and, and what all do I need to get? And I'm like, honestly, a lot of people have great interviews and they're just talking on their earbuds on the, on the phone. Like, it's really that simple. And they're like, yeah. you know, people with the YouTube channels, like, I need to get all these cameras. And when you talk to the YouTubers, they're like... Actually, we just record off our iPhone, this thing that you have there that you're just right. not using in a certain way, right? Um, and how this relates is, again, I think um, meditation can be that way. If I just had access to Susan Piver and she was right. my, my teacher, I would be so much better able to meditate, right? Um, yeah. If I just did this, if I just that. But again, it's going back in, right? What do you have and how are you showing up with it? I totally agree. And another short story from the world of the blues. I can't, again, from the same bar, I can't tell you, like James Cotton, the great guitar uh, harmonica player, lived in Austin after a while. And he would just come in and pick up the harmonica and start blowing and just play. And he, he had so much power. And then all the burgeoning harmonica players, after he dropped the mic and left the stage, would come and check out his amp. Like, what settings is he using? And that doesn't matter. No, none of that is why he sounds like the way he does. So, yeah, I full on agreement with you. And P.S., I just had the best, write, one of the best writing experiences of my life in the perfect environment that I would like to share with you. Okay. It was on the train. I, I, thank you, Amtrak. I got an Amtrak writer's residency. And I think they gave about 25 a year. I think they might stop that program. But anyway, I got one. It was a great delight for myself. And I was on the train for two nights it was everything you could ever want in a writing environment. 
And it made me think, well, yeah, okay, I have to spend thousands of dollars and do a lot of train riding or something. But all of that stuff I was doing in my office of trying to organize this and trying to make this seat comfortable. And I'm just on the train and I'm going to New Orleans and the countryside is rolling by and there's nowhere to go. And this is my dream come true. It was great. That's amazing. And that's also part of why I'm using the Neo because it's just a little LCD screen. Oh, cool. Right. And there's nowhere else to go. So even when, even though I've transitioned back to doing more writing on the MacBook Pro, mm -hmm. when I open it, I'm like, oh, there are all these apps open and then I got to close them down and then I got to go into full screen mode and then I got to go and I got to go and I got to go as opposed to the Neo where it's just like on. <laughs> okay. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> It's not doing, it's not entertaining me. I guess I better do There's something. no music. There's nothing to plug into it. It's on. All right. <laughs> um, you know, and I'll probably, I'll probably share this, but um, what I notice is the difference between the writing environments and um, is that prior to rebuilding the practice that I have now, um, which I've been working on for a few months again, I could hear the space in between paragraphs on a computer. Mm -hmm. I can feel like that's the distraction point. Like I'd finish the thought and then be like something that'd be something grabbing my attention, or maybe I should check this, or maybe this is going on, or maybe, maybe so. And like, I need to be somewhere else. Right. That, and I can, so I can hear that space between the paragraphs. I don't know. That sounds super crazy, but like I can, it's like, there it is. Like it's the end, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when the, when, when, you know, the train passes you by and you're like, and you hear it. Right. Um, but I couldn't hear that so much on the Neo. That's right? so interesting. Um, because the paragraph would end and I'd jump to the next one. There was no distraction point. Right. Um, that is another great example of the container principle. Yeah. It's not just the room that you're in, but you made a container for your writing experience to arise from that machine. Yeah. It created containment. It, it created, you know, brackets your experience. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm no, sorry. No, no, no. I mean, but that's what it is. Right. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's both and mentality that I was mentioning earlier though, because the astute listener will be like, but didn't you just say it doesn't matter what tool and like the tool doesn't matter. Um, well, sometimes, sometimes, right. <laughs> um, but it's, is that tool working for you? Is that tool getting you in the right mindful purposeful space? And if it's not, then you have an option. You can find or create a tool Mm -hmm. that does do that for you mm -hmm. or you can fight the hell out of those distractions. You can fight the hell out of the losing the breath because you will, you absolutely will totally. um, lose. And they're designed to do that for you, right? To, mm -hmm. to, to alert you to the incoming email, to alert you to this, to, to take you there, to remind you that you need to do this. The schedule pops up and the things and the, all those things. That's exactly what the technology is designed to do. Does it's that true, technology... True. Is it designed for you to do your best work? Is it designed for you to be mindful? Is it designed for you to be present with what is mm -hmm. or writing about what could be, right? And I think those become different questions. And so um, now there are good tools on, for instance, the Mac. Byword is a great app. And it cuts out all the distractions. Byword, B-Y-W-O-R-D. Highly recommended. Cool. Um, but I can also tell you, I can open up my computer go to ByWord and the, the experience of that computer is such that it influences what gets created in a way that sometimes is helpful, sometimes is not, right? 
I get it. And yet it, it, I, so yes, ultimately the tool doesn't matter. You know, if you have cerebral palsy and you're just going to type with your, you know, and you want to do it, you're going to do it. But at the same time, there are lots of tools that we can use to make it easier for ourselves. And the tools can be a trap. Like uh, this tool isn't making it quite easy enough for me. And I need to keep tinkering with the environment and the container. And it's very, very easy speaking from deep personal experience to get really, really distracted by <clears throat> the peripherals. Yeah. And to spend the entire day organizing your app just right or trying the different applications or researching which Mac computer you need to get. Oh, maybe that's just me. Were you um, spying on me today? That's kind of how I spent my day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, the through line of this conversation, um, even with its rabbit trails have been the, the skills and practices that you learn from mindfulness and meditation can help you, um, be more prolific, more creative, um, more productive. Um, and it's probably true the other way around the school, the skills that you use in those ways, if productivity doesn't just mean getting random things off your to-do list, but more importantly, doing the stuff that matters most to you likely will help you be more mindful, um, and help you meditate and be more present in the world. So they're intertwined. Um, 100% agreed. The reason, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is a lot of times when I talk to people out there and I mention exercise and meditating practices or spiritual practices or any of these types of things, there's this like, well, I would do that, but it's going to take away time from doing, from getting stuff done or from creation and so on and so forth. And what I wanted to slide out is maybe doing those things will be what create the time for you to be more productive and creative and soulful and intentional mm -hmm. rather than keep you from doing those. I would suggest try it both ways. Knock yourself out. Just fill every moment with doing and see what happens. Some people are really good at that. Not you know, most people aren't, but some people are. And then try it the other way. Try creating intentional space and letting your mind rest just as you let your body rest. You know, if all you did was exercise, even though exercise is good for you, if all you did was exercise within about 90 minutes or three hours or 12 hours, depending on what kind of shape you're in, it would start to become destructive for you. So it's the same thing with doing and thinking. It's, it must be punctuated with periods of rest for 99.9% .9 of humans, I would, according to my anecdotal observation. Um, our survey says. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, um, because you're the guest for today's episode, um, you get to, I mean, to put forth a challenge or an invitation. Now, you may have just done that, right? It may be try it both ways. Could have been your invitation or challenge, but um, mm -hmm. you could be intentional about it. If, you know, people listening to this particular episode, um, what would you want them or what would you invite them to do? Or what would you challenge them to do based upon what we've talked about? Mm -hmm. That is very easy for me to answer. And I appreciate the question. I would challenge them to relax. My teacher, Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, has said that the more he practices, the more he feels that the entire spiritual path can be boiled down to that one word, relax. And it doesn't mean fall asleep or space out. Like, my challenge is 
do you remember how to relax? And if so, please do it more. If not, please reconnect. That's a wonderful invitation. Um, what I will say is um, many guests have initiated many invitations and challenges. Um, that is going to be one of the harder ones for people to do. Right. Um, and so I appreciate um, the challenge to relax or the invitation to relax. I also appreciate your time today. As you know, I always love talking to you. And, you know, what occurs to me is if you would be so kind to come back sometime in the future, maybe we just talk about learning to relax. I would love that if the episode has a four in it. So it has to have a four. I will <laughs> notify the team appropriately that it must have a four. But really, it is a very potent, powerful, weird, anxiety-producing topic. It's relaxation is the most anxiety-producing thought around right now. But I always love talking to you. I'm sure you, I hope you know that from the very first second we met. And I would love to come back anytime. All right, Susan, thanks a ton. All right, gang, so you heard it from Susan, and you heard it from me as well. The invitation here is to learn to relax um, if you're great at relaxing, um, please teach us how. Um, and if you um, are challenged by that, then stay tuned because sometime in the near future, I do believe in an episode that ends with four or has a four within it, Susan will come back and we'll talk more about this. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.